Let me invite you to turn in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. It's printed in your bulletin, and you have the first 14 verses there. I'm just going to be focusing on the first two verses this morning. So consider this this morning something of a commercial for the book of Ephesians. So as we come to the table, this should be a brief one. Uh, It's a pleasure to be back with you here at Faith. Um, If we haven't met, my name is Davis Morgan. I'm the RUF campus minister at Southern Miss down the road in Hattiesburg. And it's a pleasure to serve as your campus minister there where things have just kicked off in the last couple of weeks and things are sort of ramping up now as the semester is rolling. It's good to be back on campus, which we couldn't say last year. So thank you for inviting me to be here with you this morning. And uh, let's give attention to God's Word in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purposes, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things together according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you once again in need of your word, in need of the good news of your grace in need of the good news of peace with God, in need of the community of grace and peace which your gospel inaugurates and creates and sustains. We come to you in need, Holy Spirit, of your sustaining power and love and of your illuminating, divine, authoritative word. So we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. 
we pray that we would see Jesus this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're just going to talk about the first two verses briefly. Grace to you and peace, Paul says. Let me read the first two verses one more time. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know something about the New Testament, if you've read the Pauline epistles, you may know that almost every letter that Paul writes begins with these two ideas, grace to you and peace. But this morning, we're going to really dig into those two concepts because in the book of Ephesians, they really are the backbone of the entire message of the book, grace and peace. That's what Paul wishes and what he bestows on the Ephesians. That's what ultimately he says the church is about, is God's community of grace, of we might say peace through grace. So what the book of Ephesians is about is the love of God experienced and, in, and expressed in this community of peace through grace. I don't know how much you know about sheep and shepherding, but in New Zealand some years ago, there was a famous sheep. Is that the proper word for a singular sheep? Just a sheep? I don't know. There was a famous sheep named Shrek, <clears throat> and Shrek wandered off and became lost. He wandered away from his flock. He avoided capture. You need to hear this. For six years. Six years in New Zealand, which by the way is where they filmed Lord of the Rings. So I'm imagining Shrek the sheep wandering through these mountaintops and these wild fields and these forests by himself. And you might know this. Sheep have to be sheared. At least annually, sheep have to have their wool buzzed off or it will grow and grow and grow and grow. And what happened for Shrek, the sheep, is he was lost to the point that he couldn't see because the wool had grown over his eyes. The, nor the normal amount of wool that you shear from a sheep every year is about 10 pounds of wool. When Shrek was finally found... He had 60 pounds of wool on top of him. Can you imagine the weight of carrying that much extra wool because of, his, because of his lostness? It had grown over his eyes. He was blind. He was weighed down because of this isolation, this loneliness, this, this wandering nature that he had. Do you know, I think we're all a little bit like Shrek the Sheep. We're all a little bit like Shrek the sheep, and we wander off constantly, don't we? And we wander into places where we're isolated, where we can't see, and where we're weighed down because of our wanderings. Thousands of college students have just landed on campus at Southern Miss and at other campuses around the state and around the country, and they're like Shrek the sheep. They're lost. They're lonely. I remember myself as a freshman at USM in 2007 showing up to campus with gym shorts and a Homer Simpson t-shirt 
and wandering like Shrek the sheep and being lost and wondering, how am I going to make friends and being lonely and realizing for the first time that I wasn't just lonely because I didn't have friends. I was lonely with myself because I didn't know who I was. Now, your average college student might not be quite as bad as that, but they're lonely. And every decision they make right now is because of their loneliness. It's to try to deal with their isolation. And maybe in your stage of life, you're not quite as obvious as that. But don't you feel a little bit like Shrek the Sheep? As you look out, as you scan our culture, as you scan your city... Don't you see Shrek the sheep, lost, blind, wandering, weighed down? Look, my freshman experience as a kid with gym shorts and a Homer Simpson t-shirt, feeling like, the, like Shrek the sheep, is just symptomatic of a loneliness and an isolation that we all experience and that we see culture-wide. Researchers are proving now that loneliness destroys human beings. That isolation and friendlessness are as damaging to your health as long-term tobacco use. And that individual isolation that we feel speaks to a broader experience of separation, doesn't it? A broader sense of alienation. We can't have conversations anymore. Have you noticed this? We don't know how to have peaceful discourse with one another because our society is so polarized now. So we don't have peace with ourselves. We don't have peace. We don't have relationships. We don't have peace as a society. But all of that speaks to a much bigger alienation, doesn't it? You see, those are all the check engine light of the fact that we don't have peace with God, that we're alienated from the one who made us and who sustains all life. You see, all of the loneliness that every freshman college student and every person who lives alone and every person who lives in a loveless marriage and every lonely person and every person who thinks they're not lonely but really is, is experiencing, is a symptom of this alienation from God that has, that has torn apart the fabric of the cosmos. That we're separated from the God who made us. And ultimately, we feel alienated because we are alienated. And so here's my question this morning is, what do you do with that? Maybe, have you allowed yourself to face that? To see it? And what do you do with that alienation? What does the world do with it? What do you see people doing with it? I want to invite you this morning to simply ask that question as we look at these two verses and to see this one simple truth that according to Paul, according to the New Testament, the gospel is the only way out. The gospel is the only way out of that isolation, that alienation, that sense of rupture that we all have. It's what the book of Ephesians is about it's what the church is to be about, is that ultimately the gospel is the only way out of the alienation that is destroying us. And Paul breaks it into these two simple categories for us, grace and peace. These go together, grace and peace. So let's talk briefly just about grace and peace. 
What does Paul mean by grace? I remember being, I think, 18, the first time I saw the ocean. I had friends who grew up going to seaside and doing, you know, cruises and all sorts of things, but I'd never seen a big body of water. The biggest thing I'd seen is the Mississippi River, which is big enough, but going to the Gulf of Mexico at age 18 for the first time was just flooring for me because I'd never realized how big an ocean was. You could know facts about it. I could know that the, the Gulf of Mexico is 800 miles wide, that there's some 33 rivers that feed into it, that at its deepest, it's a mile deep, that last year, you may not know this, last year a marine biology expedition led by Southern Miss Marine Biology people discovered a giant squid in the Gulf of Mexico about a mile from the city of Mobile. So, enjoy Orange Beach next time you go. You can know all these facts about the Gulf of Mexico, but then there's something about standing there and realizing that you can feel the ocean in your feet through the sand, that you can feel the undulation of this big body of water. You know, what, what the message of Ephesians is, is for you and I to experience the grace of God like the ocean. Where it's not just data points that you list out and you know all, all, how all the, the T's are crossed and how all the I's are dotted, but where you feel the vibrations of it in your toes. Where you're standing before it and you smell the salt, you hear the gulls, you feel the breeze, and you're floored by it. Have you ever or lately felt the grace of God like that? What Paul wants for the city of Ephesus, for the church of Ephesus, is for them to be floored by the good news of the grace of God. And that means we have to know what we're talking about, right? So what do we, what do we mean by grace? Grace can be, if we're not careful, a Christianese term that we throw around and we never actually know what we're talking about. Right? So, what we mean by grace is this unmerited, unearned favor. Unearned favor. Meaning, it's not something that we have rights to, it's not something that we have earned or paid for. It's not like what we often want to turn religion into a Coke machine, right? When I was a kid, you could put a quarter in a Coke machine and get a knee-high grape and have a good Saturday, right? Now, you can't do that anymore. You need like $5 to get a Coke out of the Coke machine now. But there was a sense, do you remember, do you ever have that experience where you put your quarter in the machine, nothing? Do you remember the amount of rage and injustice that you feel in that moment and how you would kick the machine and pound on it? Because I paid for my knee-high grape. Give me my knee-high grape. Give me my Dr. Pepper. Give me my root beer. And then think about this. Those days when you'd come up to the Coke machine and you press the button without putting a quarter in, and boom, there's a knee-high grape at the bottom of the machine. 
You see, that's the difference between grace and law, right? Law is, I paid for my Coke, give me a Coke. Grace is, you paid nothing. This is a gift. Do you know what you do with a gift? You receive it. You receive it. That's all you do. Now, like the good news doesn't, the good news is not good, right, until the bad news is bad, right? And we know the bad news, and Paul is going to rub our noses in the book of Ephesians in the bad news again and again and again that you were not sick, but dead in your trespasses and sins. That you, were, that you had to be made alive in Christ. The good news can't be good until the bad news is bad. And we need to get in touch with this, that we're not sick, we're dead apart from Christ. But the good news is that God delights in seeking out lost sheep and dead things to make alive and to bring home. Isaiah 53, 6 says this about our Shrek the sheep hearts. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. Do you know what the good news is that comes in the next breath of that verse? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look, that's what the grace of God is is that we've wandered away, we've turned to our own way, and we do it again and again and again in our, fa- in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships, with our parents, at our schools, at our places of work. But God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That's good news for lost, weary sinners. Right? It's good advice. It's not good advice. It's good news. You see, we tend to operate, even as Christians, as if the gospel is good advice, not good news. As if it is, do these things and you'll be saved. Not, you are saved, now do these things. Right? We tend, here's good advice. Um, a loan payment structure. Right? You're in debt. Well, here's how you're going to pay out. Look, if you do these payments at this amount of time, if you pay off this credit card first and this credit card next, and if you do this, you will get out of debt. That's great advice. But it's not good news. What's good news? Paid. So when you get the receipt, paid in full. Someone has paid your debt for you. The gospel's not good advice, it's good news. Look, and the beauty of the good news is that when it really gets inside you, when, when the good news hits you like the Gulf of Mexico, is it dominates your world. I've got a three-year-old son named Sam, and in the last year we've really connected over chicken wings, which he calls bones. Now, if you don't like chicken wings, if you're vegetarian, that's totally cool. Sub a peach or a watermelon for this illustration, okay? But Sam and I, will, will, he'll come to me and he'll say, Daddy, can we eat bones? And we'll cook chicken wings and we'll douse them in barbecue sauce and we'll go to town. 
And that boy will put down some chicken wings. He weighs about 20 pounds. I've seen him put down 20 pounds of chicken wings, I'm sure. And here's what happens is it's coated in this sweet baby raised barbecue sauce. And he does the same thing when he eats watermelon or when he eats pineapple. What happens when you eat chicken wings? It gets everywhere. Right? There's no, there's no dainty way to eat barbecue wings. There's no dainty way to eat a peach. It drips and it oozes over all of you. It gets on your fingers. It runs down your chin. It covers your mouth. It covers all of you. Look, maybe you have a, a, a really clean way to eat peaches and barbecue wings. Lean into the illustration with me for a second. And then when the three-year-old has barbecue sauce in his wings and he comes on his fingers from eating wings and he, he wants to run to the couch, what do you do? No, 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 no. Why? You can't get on the couch. Why? Because everything you touch now is going to be touched with this thing that has gotten all over you. When the grace of God gets inside you, there's not one part of you that it leaves untouched, and everything you touch is now affected by the grace of God that has gotten inside you. Have you ever or lately had the grace of God seep into all of you and affect all of your life like that? So Paul wishes the Ephesians grace from God. And now peace. Peace. That's one of the biggest promises of the New Testament, that having been justified by grace, having been made right with God, we now have peace with God. And we roll over that word peace way too often. It feels sappy at times maybe because we've overused it like we overuse grace or we've used it foolishly. When I think of peace, I think of two things, hippies and Christmas. That's all I can think of is little, little sparkly Christmas ornaments that say peace. And for some reason it doesn't hit us, but maybe that's because we haven't ever or lately been at war with a king who could slaughter us. That's what peace with God means, is though you were in open hostility to this great king, the king has declared peace to the rebels, peace to the offending party. I am not going to exact judgment because I laid the judgment on my son. Peace with God. And not just peace with, our, with God, but actually, as we talked about just a minute ago, peace with ourselves. Peace with the gym shorts and the Homer Simpson t-shirt. Peace with my fractured sense of self and my conflicting thoughts and my haunted past and my sense of shame and guilt and, and the things that keep me up at night, the things that I roll over in, at 3 a.m. and think about from my own history. Peace with that. Because, as the Apostle John tells us, if our hearts condemn us, He is greater than our hearts. And He declares peace. And then not just peace with ourselves and peace with God, but peace with one another. The gospel ultimately is about reconciliation of enemies. Right? That while we were God's enemies, He sent His Son to die for us. It's about turning enemies into family. 
It's about turning enemies into family. One of the earliest distinguishing marks of the church in the first century was their love for one another, was their cross-cultural love for one another, even though they came from different backgrounds. Some were, some were from Jewish backgrounds, some were from Gentile backgrounds, some were rich, some were poor, some were even enslaved, some were, were, were women, some were men. And you think about the heavy stratification of the first century world, especially Jewish first century. This was astonishing to people. Jews and Gentiles did not mix. This is a prayer. Excuse me. This is a first century prayer that was common for Jewish men to pray. God of heaven, I praise you and thank you because you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And now into that context... Here comes this group called Christians forming this thing called a church. And they say things like, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. For all are one in Christ. And they say things like, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And the groups actually look like this. The church reflects this because early Christians believed in a gospel that said exactly what we read just a minute ago at the beginning of the service, that the gospel preached before time to Abram was to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And they believed in a a gospel story that ended at the throne of heaven with a multitude that no one can number from every tribe, from every nation, from every, every language. You see, God's grace creates a community of peace. Not it might do that, it must do that. God's grace creates a community of peace in place of hostility and alienation. Because the gospel is reconciliation. Don't you realize that our world is aching for this right now? Our world is desperate for a way to create a community of peace, a way to tear down the hostility, a way to end the stratification and alienation. And no one can figure it out. Do you know why? Because the world does not understand the cross. The cross is God's way of peace. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Cross is God's way of peace. Jesus himself says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. The peace of Christ does not conform to categories of this world because it's from another world. It's from the kingdom of heaven. So the peace of God creates this community that comes by reconciliation, which means this, 
that there can be no hierarchy of sins in Christ's church. Right? Because the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Because we all stand equally condemned outside of Christ and equally accepted inside of Christ, which means there can be no stratification of sins, no ranking of acceptable and unacceptable sins. It means there ought to be people in our church of whom we can say, she and I are about as different as we could be. And we butt heads sometimes, but I love her so deeply in Christ. That we are not the same, but we have the same Jesus. You see, what we want to be able to say in our, in our flesh is this. is This is me, this is us, and this is what we're like. And if you're like us, come be like us with us. We believe in a gospel of sameness in our flesh. But God's grace is about reconciliation of those who are not the same, of those who are dissimilar. God's grace causes us to say, you could never be more dissimilar to me than I was to Jesus. You could never be more undeserving of love than I was undeserving of Jesus' love. He was in the court of heaven, in the very form of God, surrounded by holy angels, circling Him and crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And I was a lost sheep in gym shorts. And even though I was that far, he became an infant in a donkey trough in a weird town called Bethlehem in an out-of-nowhere place. So there's no room for me to look down my nose at anyone in this church. Right, so the question starts being not are you similar or are you deserving, but how do I bring grace and peace to you? How do I express the good news that I've received? So what's the church about? What's the book of Ephesians about? It's about seeing that kind of community formed in Christ. It's about being a place where we can be truly known and loved because we need the same grace and we need the same peace. Robin Williams once said that the worst thing imaginable is not being alone, but it's being with people who make you feel alone. And look, y'all, through the Holy Spirit, the church is designed to be a place where we experience the opposite of that. The opposite of alienation. Be, not because it's cool, not because it's hip, not because people tweet about it, but because it's Christ-like, and it's what the grace of God does. All right, let's, let's start landing the plane here just a little bit. Three quick takeaways. First, notice that the dominating prepositional phrase of this chapter is the phrase, in Christ. Saints and faithful ones in Christ is how Paul describes these Ephesians. Remember who you are 
in Christ. God made you and only God gets to define you. Only He gets to say who you ultimately are. And if you're trusting in Jesus, in this passage, He calls you saint and faithful. Meaning that's what defines you, God says, in Christ. In Christ, you are a holy one and a faithful one. Not because you've done enough holy things. Not because you're on your devotional plan this week. Not because you've avoided those pitfalls this week. Not because your family's well put together. Not because your finances are in order. But because of the blood of Jesus that seals your pardon and brands you as righteous in God's sight. Remember who you are in Christ, even before you focus on what you do for Christ. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Go, as, as, as William Carey said, go attempt things for Christ. Attempt great things for Christ. But even before that, remember who you are in Christ. Second, remember Christian community. I might be preaching to the choir here a little bit, but I have to tell college students this all the time. You cannot be a lone wolf Christian. You cannot show up and then walk out the door and be a lone wolf Christian. Paul says these Christians are to be in Christ in Ephesus. Right? In Christ in Brookhaven. In Christ in your family. God has designed you to run off of relationships and community. First with Him but also with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So remember Christian community. Lastly, remember where your true hope is. Remember that your true hope is in the kingdom of heaven. The community of God's grace is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. So put your hope in that kingdom, not this worldly kingdom. All right, those are my three TED Talk takeaways Now back to Shrek. You know, they did eventually catch Shrek the sheep. And they sheared him. And they took away the 60 pounds of wool, which was enough, by the way, to make 27 large men's suits. And then they did this. They took him to Parliament. And they took him to meet the Prime Minister of New Zealand. And then they threw a party for Shrek. They took this lost sheep and they made him clean and they gave him back his sight. And then they took him into the head of state's office and they said, let's have a party. Friends, this table that you're about to come to That's what this table is. Is the king of heaven saying, I know you were lost, but I found you, and I've made you clean, and I've opened your eyes. And even though you are as undeserving as you could possibly be, because of my grace, I'm going to throw you a party. There's a feast coming 
one day, brothers and sisters. There's a feast coming when King Jesus will take His bride to Himself. And there will be a cosmic heavenly party like there's never been. A feast with rich wine and rich food, Isaiah tells us. And this is a foretaste of that. So as you come to the table in just a moment, come hungry. Come hungry because of God's grace and peace. Let's pray in Christ's name. Father God, we thank you for your grace and peace to us in Jesus Christ. We pray as we come to the table that you would prepare our hearts to receive what you have set aside for us in Christ's name. Amen.